0: You're listening to Season 8 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today.
1: This is Episode 8.4 The Danger is in a Particular Location, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, Gundam fan, and I just think that Mora's neat.
0: And I'm Nina, new to Stardust Memory, but already fairly certain that no one will displace Mora as my favorite character in this series. We didn't write those together, by the way. Each of us wrote these things independently. (laughs) We just have Mora on the brain. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 730 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters. Ari, Ethan R, DJ Phaser, Nikki T, Spencer L, Mello, Emery, Second Serenity, Paladin T, James B, and Benjamin B. You keep us genki. We hope someday to expand the MSP team, but for now, it's just Tom and I. Writing and researching, recording, editing, producing, mixing— publishing, promoting, and all the other ing words that go into running your own business. It's a full-time and then some job, and we can't keep making MSB without support from listeners like you. Help us reach more listeners by recommending us to your friends and reviewing us on your podcast app of choice, become a monthly subscriber on Patreon, or make a one-time payment on Ko-fi. Links to all of the ways to support us are at gundampodcast.com support.
1: This week, Stardust Memory Episode 4, Nesa no Kobosen. Its translated English title is Attack and Retreat on the Burning Sands, and its original English title was The Lost Troopers. It was released on VHS and LaserDisc on August 22, 1991. Kase Mitsuko and Imanishi Takashi remain as co-chief directors, with Imanishi also drawing the storyboards. Some on staff have suggested in interviews that this episode was the inflection point where Kase decided to disengage from the production because of a combination of scheduling issues and dissatisfaction with the way that the story was developing. This is also the last of the episodes written by Gobu Fuyunori, and the first one under the supervision of assistant director Akane Kazuki. Akane had been a production assistant on Zeta, Double Zeta, and Shara's Counterattack but was promoted to assistant director on F91. He will be the assistant director on four episodes of 0083, the second most after Watanabe Shinichiro. In 1996, Akane would reunite with 0083's mecha designer, Kawamori Shoji of Macross fame, to make The Vision of Escaflowne, Akane's debut work as chief director. He also directed Gene Shaft, Heat Guy J, No Ain to Your Other Self, and more. The animation director for this episode was Osaka Hiroshi in his Gundam debut, but he's going to be the character designer for Victory, G Gundam, and the Encounters in Space video game. In 1998 he was one of the founding members of studio Bones, famous for Fullmetal Alchemist, My Hero Academia, Eureka 7, etc. He was also deeply involved in training younger animators, especially at Kyoto Animation. Tragically, Osaka himself died of cancer in 2007, just 44 years old. With that, let's go to the recap.
0: The mood on the Albion is tense. After chasing Gato and the Unit 2 to eastern Africa, they lost the trail and now Federation ships crisscross the continent, looking for any sign of Xeon holdouts or the stolen mobile suit. With no enemy to fight and no other duties, Monsha causes problems. Drinking constantly, harassing women on the crew, and sabotaging the landing strip for the core fighter, putting lives and material at risk in his eagerness to embarrass Cole. When Mora stands up to him, bait jumps in on Monsha's side, and a fight breaks out between the three of them on one of the mobile suit decks a fight Maura wins handily. But she isn't the only one fed up. There are grumblings throughout the ship about the pilot's antics and attitude. To Lieutenant Burning's embarrassment, Captain Synapse gently but firmly admonishes him to get his pilots under control. Carved into the land below, an old diamond mine now acts as a hidden base for Xeon holdouts. After three years in hiding, the soldiers there are jubilant at Gato's arrival thrilled at the prospect of being able to do something to support Operation Stardust and the return of Xeon. The base's commander speaks with Gato privately, explaining that they will exhaust the last of their resources helping Gato escape. The lieutenant will take their only HLV or heavy lift vehicle to rendezvous with the recovery ship in orbit, while the base's ten remaining mobile suits will provide a distraction. The commander also orders the remaining holdout soldiers to surrender once the Unit 2 is safely away. They will have done their part for Operation Stardust, and he has no desire for them to throw their lives away pointlessly. Back on the Albion, Random Chance leads a digestively distressed Keith to crash into Anaheim Engineer Orville in the hall. A sheaf of papers goes flying, and although they are quickly retrieved, one crumpled sheet lies forgotten on the floor until Burning picks it up and examines it learning that Orville has been working for Zeon all along. The double agent is allowed to escape in the core fighter, in the hope that he will lead them straight to the Unit 2's hiding place. But the Zeon veterans in the mine are too smart for that. They do not answer when Orville, aka Blau Engel, hails them over the radio, and they send two mobile suits out to intercept him, shooting down the core fighter before it can give away the base's position. Still, He'd gotten close enough to give the Albion a clue, and they prepare for a more targeted search. Whether it's meant to be a punishment or a bid to create unit cohesion, Burning orders Monsha to lead Team A, Keith and Cole, in searching the area where the core fighter was brought down, while Bate and Adel form Team B and wait in reserve near the Albion. Monsha continues to insult the rookies' experience, abilities, and general character, but the younger pilots seem used to this now. After jogging their mobile suits over the planes for a few minutes, they catch a glimpse of the mobile suits that shot down the core fighter. Monsha orders them to stop and open fire, repeating the order over his team's insistence they can't possibly hit the enemy from their current position. Beamfire streaks through the sky, and the two Xeon mobile suits, facing stronger opposition than they had expected, panic and run, which is all according to plan, Monsha gloats expecting the fleeing mobile suits to lead them right to the hidden base. Instead, they lead them into an ambush. Focused on the mobile suits in front of them, Team a is caught unawares when shots come at them from the side, where two more mobile suits had lain in wait. They take cover in a dried up riverbed, but are completely pinned down. The remaining six Xeon mobile suits slide down the outer slope of the mine and toward the ship, hoping to keep it occupied while the HLV launches. Team B does their best to take out the Xeon mobile suits and defend the Albion, despite being outnumbered 3 to 1. It is urgent that Team A rejoin them, so Moncha, ever eager to hurt or embarrass Cole, orders him to break through the enemy line before they're overrun. It sounds like suicide, but Moncha knows exactly which buttons to push. You're the Gundam pilot, aren't you? If you won't do it, get out of the mobile suit and I will. What, are you just going to let them take the Unit 1, too? Angry, Cole launches the Gundam into the air and in moments has shot down all four of the enemy suits that had them surrounded. Team A races back to the Albion. A cloud of smoke announces the HLV's launch and it arcs up into the atmosphere. The fighting around the Albion makes proper targeting impossible, but they shoot anyway, hoping for a lucky hit. They hope in vain. Gato gets clean away. The commander of the hidden base pilots one of their last Xeon mobile suits and leads the remainder of his team in a likely suicide charge on the bridge of the Albion. Only the commander gets through the haze of defensive fire. He takes aim. Fear and panic tear through the bridge. There's no time and nothing else to do. Nina screams. And from the ground below, beam fire lances through the enemy before he can take his shot. It seems that Cole, and Team A, arrived just in time. As I was trying to compile all my various notes and observations into sort of more cohesive points about this episode, I realized one of the things that's been bothering me, which is, there is very little uh, detail about the current political situation, and certainly not enough for any of us viewers to make a judgment on whether or not we agree or disagree with the politics of the people involved. Gatto mentions freedom for space noids. In what ways are they not free? What exactly is the Federation doing? What are its policies? What are Neo Zeon's policies?
1: And this is not a gotcha, this is not like Gato is wrong because we know that actually things are great for the space-noids, it's more that we don't know. We have no idea what the conditions are or what Gato's agenda is or what the political program of Delaz and this Xeon Reborn operation might be.
0: Within the show, there is no information on which I could base which side of this argument I support.
1: <laughs> The thing is that the show itself incorporates that uncertainty and ignorance. It actually highlights it in the figure of this commander who's in charge of the Kimberlide base. Uh, But he quite clearly says to Gato, I have no idea what your plan is and that's fine. I trust you and I trust my orders and I'm going to go ahead with it and sacrifice my whole base and all my men in order to ensure the success of Operation Stardust, a thing I know nothing about.
0: My understanding of that conversation, at least, was not that he doesn't know what Neo Zeon stands for or what Neo Zeon plans to do if they ever reform. It's that he doesn't know what Operation Stardust entails.
1: Well, but the whole concept of a reborn Neo Zeon is so fluid. Like, what does that mean? All of the leaders from before are dead. The, The country is a different nation now. It's an evocative ideal, but it's meaningless.
0: Is it meaningless to these characters in that world or is it just meaningless to us?
1: I, I think that for this base commander, he has a concept of what, you know, Neo Zeon means for right. him uh, and for Gato as well and for Delaz. But there's no reason to think that all of them have the same ideal of what that new Neo Zeon would look like.
0: That's very true.
1: We know that Delaz was a Gerenist. Maybe this guy was a Gerenist, but the forces on Earth tended to be loyal to Casilia or to Garma rather than to gearan or dozel. So like,
0: what does it all mean?
1: Who is going to be the new supreme commander assuming they agree on the necessity of a supreme commander? Yeah, lots of big questions that the show does not even attempt to answer. And this also returns to something I said last week about like the Antarctic Treaty. We don't have enough information to know whether or not it would be relevant.
0: And I was left wondering is this information left out because this is a, a show for the quote-unquote hardcore fan who has read all the supplemental materials and actually knows all the answers to these questions, it's just not in the show, or is it supposed to be vague? Is that part of the suite of storytelling decisions that they have made? Because in the absence of that information, we're left kind of trying to go by vibes, (laughs) who we like, who we don't like. You know, we have that very obvious visual tie to Nazism. But then we also have the portrayal of these two sides. And the entire episode is a study in contrasts with the Zeon holdouts, you know, united, serious, professional, self-sacrificing, and the Federation full of infighting, childish, unprofessional, selfish.
1: Undisciplined.
0: Like, who looks more sympathetic in that characterization? Absolutely.
1: I mean, these these Zion holdouts basically stepped right out of a propaganda poster. They're all, for one thing, suspiciously well-barbered for a bunch of guys who have been living underground for three years with no access to shaving cream or fresh razors.
0: Although... For all that Gato makes a big deal out of always being sort of perfectly tidily dressed, I noticed in the crowd of Xeon soldiers in this base the wide spectrum, both of types of uniforms <laughs> and formality of dress. Mm-hmm. There were standard uniforms and desert uniforms. There are guys in full dress, coat buttoned up to the top button, and then there are guys who are half undressed running around in their undershirts and coveralls and You know, it's a a massive spectrum there.
1: I think Gato would probably say that their efforts to maintain proper uniform decorum under such extreme circumstances are laudable. Oh, yeah. He would 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 shed a manly tear.
0: He would be all about the perfectly dressed soldiers.
1: But he accepts the ones who aren't because under the circumstances, they're doing the best that they can.
0: But he would maybe chide them if they were his men.
1: Maybe it's good that he doesn't have any men directly under him.
0: The other element, and this is a tiny thing, but that made me think that maybe a bunch of these questions get answered in supplemental material. You all know how I feel about that. I think it's bad storytelling. (laughs) But anyway, uh, the other thing that made me think, oh, maybe that's what's going on here, is they never define HLV. Mm -hmm. They explain what it does. It's very clear (laughs) from the episode what an HLV is for, but everybody keeps throwing around this acronym and never says what it is.
1: I sympathize with this because Everybody in the show knows what it is, and so it would be weird for them to define it. Probably there's some way they could have explained it to us better than that. But, you know, we don't want a scene where the base commander is like, as you already know, HLV stands for Heavy Lift Vehicle or Heavy Lift Launch Vehicle.
0: It's funny because uh, I'm very used to reading made up words in fantasy and science fiction novels, and you just come to figure out what it means through context, and it's fine But for whatever reason, when it's an acronym, (laughs) I really, really don't like not knowing precisely what it's supposed to mean.
1: (laughs) They have made the conscious storytelling decision to make a story where all of the characters are professionals and know what's going on. Mm -hmm. First Gundam could have gotten around this by having Amuro or Kai or Hayato be like,
0: What's an HLV?
1: Exactly. Judo, Camille, these were civilian kids impressed into service. This is a story about professional soldiers who ought to know this stuff.
0: Speaking of Amuro, there were so many scenes in this episode where Cole in the normal suit looks exactly like Amuro. It's hard to say whether they were copying, you know, framing or shots from previous episodes because there's only so many ways that you could, you know, frame a guy in a cockpit, but... I found the visual resemblance extremely striking. I
1: think it's meant to be. I'm fairly certain we've seen the, the scene of mobile suit goes to attack bridge of warship and then gets sniped by the Gundam at distance. And when they do that, they do show the Gundam holding its beam rifle with two hands, one holding on the like side of the gun. And that's something we basically only ever see Amuro doing in the original Gundam. It's a very peculiar firing posture.
0: During that attack on the bridge, they do some neat visual stuff that's different than what we've seen previously, but reminds me of various sort of less real, more impressionistic stuff that they did in First Gundam at various points. There's the blurring around both Cole and Synapse when the bridge is targeted, and they realize, oh no. (laughs) There's Nina's scream, and the background goes pure white. It's like she's suspended in a, in a void.
1: Mm-hmm. Since you came around to Cole and his resemblance to Amaro, do you want to guess how many lines of dialogue Cole has in this episode? Half a dozen. It's somewhat more than that. <laughs> I went through this episode because I was really struck by what a small presence Cole has had in it. Like I said before, this show has a charisma gap. Cole is just not a major presence in his own show, and it has to be filled by other characters. In this episode, Cole speaks 14 lines of dialogue. By comparison, extremely tangential side character Alpha Bait has 12 lines of dialogue. Captain Synapse, 25. The base commander also has 25. And Bernard Mancha gets 35.
0: Counterpoint, I quite like Cole as a character, and... I think the bulk of his presence in this show is nonverbal.
1: I grant you that. And yes, he does have a nonverbal presence in this episode.
0: But not just a nonverbal presence. It's not just like he's there in the background. No, I know. Being I know.
1: He does stuff. He acts. He emotes. Yes, he
0: emotes a lot.
1: And he has some very, uh, very good character acting. Actually, fantastic character acting throughout this episode.
0: He's uh, a quiet, dry humored sort of fellow. That Terse, is, one might say. Laconic.
1: This is, in fact, the first time we have had any indication of his dry humor. <laughs> so that's a nice character note for him to add at this stage. I just think there's not very much of Cole here. And that's fine. This is, it's an ensemble cast kind of production. No problem with that. But it is going to make it hard to really like get invested in Cole's struggles to the extent that he has them later on, I think. Maybe you're built different.
0: Uh, I agree in as much as where we are in the show now. I'm not watching the show feeling like it's a show about Cole. I'm watching the show feeling like it's about their task. It's about their undertaking. Mm -hmm. It's not about any one character, any one person.
1: Kind of seems like it's about Mancha.
0: I don't think so. Just because they let him talk a lot doesn't mean it's put him in
1: basically every scene and Yeah.
0: We're not given any real like way to sympathize with him, so I don't think it's about him.
1: Actually, that's an interesting point. There's a moment in this episode where Mancha tries to use the sub-cameras of his gym to look up Nina's skirt when she's standing on the bridge. Yep. Usually, when there's a scene like this of a character leering at another character, it is an excuse for the show and the audience to also leer at that character why it's called fan service, But the show doesn't do that here. There actually is no, like, lewd image of Nina in that moment. We know Moncha is trying to get one, but the audience and the show don't go along with him for that.
0: I know this isn't unrealistic per se, but it just boggles my mind that here is Moncha, who seems legitimately upset that Nina dislikes him, And then he keeps acting like a complete ass. (laughs) It's like maybe she wouldn't hate your guts if you stopped trying to look up her skirt and feeling up her employees and like.
1: Mancha doesn't want to change and grow as a person in order to find love. Mancha wants to be exactly the same person he is and be adored for it.
0: Good luck with that. He uh, again is introduced in this episode, his first scene in this episode. He's holding a bottle. This man is an alcoholic. (laughs) Uh, I was right about his friends.
1: Bait seems terrible. And I don't know. I wonder about Chap.
0: Chap, I think, falls into the trap of, well, a lot of us fall into this trap when we have friends who behave badly, right? We don't want to participate in what the bad thing is, but we stop short of calling our friends out or doing anything about their bad behavior.
1: Chap washes his hands of Mancha, basically trying to kill Cole.
0: And he doesn't try to make excuses for Monsha's behavior, but he also doesn't try to stop him or do anything.
1: He's best contrasted with Keith, I think. Keith will go to bat for Cole. Keith will distract Nina so that Cole can look at the Gundam some more.
0: Keith will get into trouble with Cole.
1: But when Cole does something stupid and dangerous, Keith is also willing to go to burning to try to... Put a stop to it and... yeah. Yeah. I sympathize with Chap, though, because... Like, he went through the war with these guys. They're not just his friends, and they might not really even be his friends. Like, you can choose your friends, but you don't get to choose your squad mates.
0: You don't get to choose dudes who have saved your life multiple times.
1: Right. Like, there's a bond there that goes beyond friendship and probably makes it hard for him to call out Mancha. He still should, but you can understand why it's hard for him.
0: This actually brings me to another point we get some odd little bits and pieces about Burning. Uh, My first complaint about him being that even after the first fight, even after he has been basically publicly shamed on the bridge in front of the entire bridge crew because of the behavior of the pilots. And Synapse is nice about it, but pretty unequivocal that Burning needs to get the pilots under control. And then there's yet another fight later. And in the interim, Burning hasn't done anything Not a blessed thing. (laughs) He doesn't do anything until he assigns the teams for them to go out. And I couldn't help but wonder if, for all that Burning seemed like a really great commander when it was just you know Cole and Keith and Alan, if he's not really capable of being in command of his friends. We know that he has a long history with these other three guys. Mm -hmm. They know each other from way back. They fought together. He might not really be up for reining them in.
1: Maybe he can't call Mancha and Bait to task for the same reasons that Chap can't. Yeah.
0: The other side of this, the other possibility, and this was uh, <laughs> weird and complicated. In the version of the show that we're watching, there's a line when he first leaves the bridge and he's very angry and... I'm pretty sure the line in Japanese is Dariga Ichiban Wakaten no ka. Which the subtitles translate as Don't They Understand I Want to Cut Loose As Much As They Do? Which sounds like him saying he wishes he could be drinking and fighting and assaulting women. Uh which yuck. Ew. Horrible. I parsed over it and parsed over it, and I'll be honest, I really I don't know what it's supposed to mean the only other possible alternative that i could sort of think of is the the verb that he describes wanting to do abareru is like to run riot to run wild to uh like commit violence
1: <laughs> to blow off some steam
0: but uh, but also like rioting like mm-hmm. in the scary bad sense and i conceived one possibility <laughs> Maybe the Japanese does not allow for this interpretation. I'm not sure. But it's possible that he could actually be saying in more of a threatening way, I'll show them that I am the one who really needs to blow off steam, as in, I will punish them severely. Uh huh. That will be my blowing off steam. It could be. On the other hand, point in favor of the way the line is translated, in a previous episode, someone refers to burning as that old lech which I wondered about because he certainly doesn't give off that vibe in the first couple episodes of the show. But uh, given the behavior of his his old buddies, maybe he is slash was. And the first time the Albion gets hit, the bridge shudders and Nina stumbles and he steps in to catch her, but he keeps hanging on to her. He's holding her pretty close.
1: <laughs> He's on crutches. She's in heels. They are much more stable together than apart.
0: Maybe that was his sneaky plan. <gasps>
1: you mean he got injured just so that he would have an excuse to grab Nina?
0: No. So cunning. Just that he has a, you know, a justification if anybody asks. <laughs> I don't
1: know. I'm thinking Burning probably was a lot more like Mancha and Bait and Chap back in the day. But he's got kids now, which is to say <laughs> Cole and Keith and Kirks. And, you know, he turned into a father figure. And to reinforce that position... How does he try to fix the Mancha problem? He turns Mancha into a commander. He gives Mancha kids to look after. The presentation of the pilots on the Federation side, they're characterized by one of the bridge operators, uh, Simon, I think, who says that the pilots act like they're the stars of the show. They're all prima donnas. And they are. They, t- they totally are.
0: My understanding is that's also true in real life.
1: <laughs> that, that may be so, but I don't have any personal experience, so I'll refrain from <laughs> commenting. Pilot listeners, let us know.
0: Are you all a bunch of, like, cocky hotshots?
1: <laughs> but the thing for the pilots is, during normal routine operations on the ship, everybody has stuff to do, but they don't really. The pilots just kind of wait until it's time for fighting and like in theory, yes, they have things to do maintenance, scouting, checks whatever, but like their real job is to be available for when there's something to do which gives them this feeling of like being cooped up and bored and having nothing to do and they all just want to cut loose. And this applies to Burning especially because he's injured and he can't go out and pilot, but like by temperament and training and necessity they're all kind of pressure cookers just waiting to go off.
0: I kept getting flashbacks to, you know, name a <laughs> book or movie about the age of sail and blockade duty.
1: Mm-hmm. Or gosh, when they're in irons, when the wind is dead and they're just sitting there.
0: I was thinking more about blockade duty because being in irons, there's even less you can do. But, you know, in a Horatio Hornblower <laughs> book or whatever, you often hear about just like constant drilling, constant exercises. Because if the crew is left idle, they will get into trouble.
1: In exactly the same ways. They'll drink and they'll fight.
0: You have to tire everybody out and keep everybody busy. And not all of that is work. Most of it is work, but some of it is also entertainments. You find out who plays an instrument. Okay, let's have a concert. Let's have a dance party. Let's <laughs> <laughs> idle hands, etc. This really does feel like a show where a lot of the most important communication about characters is nonverbal. We know that Monsha is bothered by Burning being upset with him because he makes a face. He doesn't say anything about it. He makes like a "Ah," kind of face. In that moment where he orders Cole, like, you have to break the enemy line. You have to break us out. Based on the circumstances, I think he's right. Cole is in the best (laughs) mobile suit of the three of them. They are entirely pinned down and the enemy is about to come down on them if they don't bust out. That's all true. But he makes like a sneaky side-eye smiley face while he's giving the order, which gives us the sense that he like wants Ko to get killed or wants Ko to fail or wants something bad to happen, even though it's a perfectly reasonable order on its face.
1: I mean, sort of half of one, right? Like, I think the actual plan should have been that Ko distracts them while Mancha and Keith take them out instead of just being like, hey, co do the whole thing yourself.
0: Yeah, I mean, there, there probably should have been more of a plan than there was, but like tasking Cole with being the first out feels mm-hmm. reasonable. Sure,
1: and it is actually quite clever of Mancha, a, a brief view into his actual skill and experience as a pilot that he can tell like, okay, they're consciously stirring up a bunch of dust because they're planning to attack us in close quarters that he can read the situation that way.
0: And you can tell that Cole is occasionally impressed with Monsha. He's generally respectful.
1: Cole never met an authority figure he didn't listen to.
0: But in that moment where after Monsha has told them to fire on the enemy and Cole and Keith are like, we can't possibly hit them from here. And he says, I didn't ask you that. I asked you to shoot at them. And then the enemy runs away and Monsha's like, okay, now they're going to lead us where we need to go. Cole gets an expression on his face like, Oh, (laughs) that was the point. When Moncha begrudgingly compliments him after he takes out four mobile suits in like four seconds. uh,
1: You mean you could have killed the enemies at any time? (laughs) Not at any time.
0: Only when it was narratively essential. (laughs) So there may be a bit of a softening in their relationship by the end of this episode because Moncha has seen Cole in action against the enemy and has seen that he is brave and not completely incompetent.
1: (laughs) Mm, I don't know. I think that their rivalry over Nina and the Gundam is too strong. I think for whatever grudging respect Cole might have just earned, I think Moncha is going to let a lot of it go and explain it away by like, oh, he was in the Gundam. And if I had had the Gundam, I could have done that too.
0: I think perhaps you are letting foreknowledge (laughs) creep in.
1: No, no. I promise. I don't remember this show nearly well enough for that.
0: All right. I found the end of this episode to feel like, oh, OK, they're probably never going to like each other, but these two can work together now.
1: I just think coming out of the last episode and looking at this one, it really feels like a Mancha cole rivalry is standing in proxy for the Gato-Cole rivalry. Mancha again, is an older, confident, bombastic figure. Gato stole the GPO 2. Mancha desperately wants to get that unit 1. And while Ko has not shown much in the way of romantic interest in Nina, we do see a kind of love triangle is like maybe too strong a term for it, but like Mancha wants Nina. Nina shows an affection and a respect for Ko that makes Mancha incredibly jealous. So, like, there's something on the order of a love triangle happening here. It's like, the Gundams are her babies, and everyone is competing to be their stepdad.
0: Or, in a way, their dad-dad.
1: Hmm. I guess you could sort of extend the metaphor to say that a mobile suit without a pilot is like...
0: Unfertilized egg.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it's only when you introduce the pilot that it gestates into a fully formed being.
0: Alternatively, uh, you know, obviously depending on era and culture, but there have been many points in history where an infant is almost entirely the property of their mother. Like a father does not have anything involved with a child until that child is old enough to have a conversation and be sort of treated like a person. <laughs> and so there is no like gestationally father for this creation. Or if there is one, it doesn't matter, it's not relevant. Mm hmm. She birthed the physical thing, and now the fight is over. Who gets to shape it? Who gets to control it? Who gets to decide what it's going to be?
1: The vibe has always been, especially between Mancha and Ko, that whoever Nina picks is the one who gets it. And in this episode, Moncha appeals to Nina. He says, I, I, was, I, ju- I was just a little bit drunk that time. If we did it again, I would win. Please, please give me the Gundam. I'm normal and can be trusted with Gundams
0: yeah uh absolutely and that and that framing reinforces the idea that it's a love triangle of sorts she's choosing her her suitor her (laughs) co-parent nina gets one really interesting moment in this episode uh that i want to talk about for a couple of reasons she is staring out the window like everybody looking for any sign of a base any sign of the unit two and there's a sort of internal monologue going She uses the phrase, the Earth's environment has too wide a range of expressions. Mm. And I love that because if you had grown up in space, if you had never been to Earth, how disorienting would all the different environments feel? How alien and strange would the sort of vast array of different biomes and conditions and geography feel after outer space, after the moon? The other thing I like about that scene is I think in most media, the tendency is to act as though time is suspended when someone is deep in their thoughts. And this episode does not do that. (laughs) While she's been deep in her thoughts, other conversations have been happening and she's caught off guard because she didn't hear what was being said, which just felt like a nice detail.
1: I really liked Nina's reverie. And I wish that we had more of it. I kind of wish the whole show was framed more through her eyes in this way. That she
0: was more of the main character.
1: Or at least a kind of persistent observer character. We have the narrator returning at the beginning of every episode to give a kind of like objective eye of God viewpoint on what's happening. And that's fine. It's fine. Um,
0: When she could be our Ishmael, basically. Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) I think it would be better. If instead of the narrator, we had Nina narrating the events in this style, in the moment, her impressions and a little it's like a little bit more poetic in the way she thinks about things, which is a neat character note on her since we don't get that side of her in her interactions with these people.
0: Talking about Nina as this space perspective and, and a, an interesting observer on the action of the show Reminded me of a couple of other <laughs> moments that came up between Moncha and Cole that highlight other possible bases for conflict in between them. At one point, Moncha calls the space noids aliens, Uchijin, spacemen. And Cole is like, I think the correct term is <laughs> space noid.
1: I think it's Keith who corrects him.
0: Well, whichever of them it is. Feels very much like conversations about how language evolves and how terms become offensive and potentially, you know, correcting people you know who are older who remember the use of a different term, and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, we don't really say that anymore. We, like.
1: I can think of some specific examples very similar to this, where after a war against a certain people,
0: mm, the yes. uh, the
1: terminology that former soldiers use to refer to them needs to be corrected periodically.
0: Which comes back to that potential generational conflict mm-hmm. that I talked about before, that they have such different experiences, even though knowing Gundam, they're probably not that far apart in no, age.
1: No, no. Though when we say generational, it might seem to imply like that Mancha is old enough to be Ko's father or something. But really, in this context, what we mean is those who fought in the war and those who didn't.
0: Right. There are a lot of different generational inflection points around either historic events or technology. I mean, a, a common one now is, do you remember what airports were like before 9-11? hmm <laughs> Right? Two people might only be separated by five years, but that might mean that they have completely different memories <laughs> of right. the world.
1: Totally. Did you grow up in the forever wars or do you remember the 90s?
0: Right. Or... Did you grow up with the Internet or not or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. any number of other uh, big inflection points? I'm sure a pre-COVID world and a post-COVID world is going to be a big one going yes, forward. Absolutely. Also possibly related to that generational divide between them. The other thing I wondered about is if there is a class element of the conflict between them. When Mora gets really upset after the sabotaging of those lights or beam fields or lights and beam fields, whatever, his retort after getting chewed out is, Oh, is this elite from the academy not capable? Like, Oh, isn't he supposed to be so special because of this and that and the other? Which sort of implies that Monsha did not have those things. Muncha did not go to some fancy military academy. Muncha... Muncha was not among the elite of their Air Force, Space Force, whatever.
1: We haven't had the opportunity to meet many, like, gym pilots. In previous Gundam, we've seen test pilots for experimental mobile suits and psychic space teens who get impressed into service and wind up with the coolest best prototypes
0: and test pilots are generally speaking the elites because you are using largely untested and potentially unreliable technology and so you like your chances of survival are highest Mm -hmm. if you are the most skilled pilots there are
1: and you have to know a lot about the systems to be able to like test them properly and report on what they do and you're probably working with top secret stuff so you have to be highly trained trusted. So, like, Chris Mackenzie was not a, a typical Federation pilot, right? We haven't met very many Manchas, and we don't really know what a typical career experience for one of these guys is. We saw in First Gundam, once those gyms started showing up, there were, like, massive swarms of them, hundreds, you know, maybe thousands of them being deployed in those big battles, and uh, getting killed in great numbers. So, presumably, for Mancha's generation... If you were willing and met some like basic minimum qualifications, they would stick you in a gym, and if you survived, you might get promoted. Who knows how many friends they saw die in that meat grinder testing ground.
0: In that same vein, and I think we probably talked about this at one point or another, in the Japanese case, toward the end of the war, they had more planes than they had pilots. They were desperate for anybody to throw in those planes, and... Started taking young men who had had less and less training and were younger and younger uh, just to get bodies in planes.
1: You know, to talk of the scale, during World War II, the United States alone produced like 300,000 planes. Not all of those were fighter planes, but like think of the number of pilots that would be required for that. Think of the number of the losses.
0: I feel like I almost want to do a roundup of all the different acting moments, all the different bits of body language that really stood out to me and that I really liked. The first one, going back to almost the very beginning of the episode, Burning stabbing the door open button with his crutch, because he's so angry at his friends causing a ruckus and embarrassed. And that Synapse, when Simon is saying like, oh, no, we're not under attack, it's... um. The mobile suit <laughs> hanger.
1: Those guys again.
0: Synapse kind of like looks down or pulls his hat down. He kind of hides his face from everybody. Presumably out of politeness because he knows this must be very embarrassing for burning. Mm-hmm. But also. And then once we get to the hanger, we never see Monsha physically assault any women. But there is a woman in the background crying. And another woman comforting her. And there is a man with his fists balled up and another with his arms crossed in front of his chest. The implication is that Monsha did something really bad and unacceptable. And so, you know, feels good to see Mora beat him up.
1: It does. And And
0: also throw his friend. That was cool, too. Well, his friend is being such a... Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I... Flames! Flames <laughs> from the sides of my face!
1: Let's just say Mora is a treasure. Mora is our hero. That's a good throw. By the way, that's a very high-energy throw onto a very hard surface. So bait is going to be hurting for a while.
0: Ugh, that line about, oh, you're just jealous he didn't make a pass at you. Ugh.
1: <sighs> Ugh. You know, given how terribly they have treated the mechanics and how this scene shows all of the mechanics lined up against the pilots like this it would not be surprising if one of them were to say slip a playing card into the systems of somebody's mobile suit.
0: Funny you should mention this because later when team A gets pinned down when Moncha leads his two men into an ambush the pilot of the Albion itself has a smile on his face when he hears about this. (laughs) (laughs) He's foregrounded. He doesn't speak. It's synapse in the background talking to some other people, but he's there. And if you look at his face, he's got a little bit of a smile.
1: Maybe he just, you know, maybe he's a nervous smiler. Some of us are like that. In a really subtle note, you know, when they're gambling and Mantra throws down his terrible poker hand, which is almost a straight, which is to say nothing at all. (laughs) Um, you know, there's a ton of money and somebody's watch and credit <laughs> cards sitting in the pot. Um, Chap is holding a royal flush. And he doesn't say anything. He doesn't like, Oh, let's play out this hand or anything. He's just eh, whatever. Mancha be in Mancha. And it's it's the same attitude that he later brings to those other scenes where he's like, Yeah, Mancha be in Mancha. I'm just gonna stand over here on the side with my hands in my pockets.
0: And it's Mancha's Body language, in my opinion, that makes clear that he actually does care what Nina thinks about him. Uh, She's not just a woman in his orbit that he's going to creep on. He feels some kind of distinct (laughs) attraction to her because he gets so bashful when she shows up. Apologetic, nervous laughter, very sort of conciliatory posture. And Mora's is in the background, like, smiling to see him brought low. It's
1: humiliated.
0: And when Cole takes off after her, because he's not interested in fighting Moncha over this, <laughs> she flashes him a peace sign.
1: After Nina has left and Moncha is just, like, staring daggers at Fuming. Cole. Fuming. Cole, like, salutes, and then he kind of bows, and then he slinks off.
0: <laughs> Looks like avoiding him is the main plan. I didn't catch it the first time I watched this episode, but during the big fight at the end, Moncha's blonde friend, what's his name? Bait. Bait. So after Bait takes out one of the Xeon mobile suits, he flips him the bird.
1: He does. He He flips him the bird.
0: And then gets shot from behind while he's not paying attention.
1: I wonder if that's like meant to be an Americanism.
0: I'm I'm almost positive it is. Look at how American this big blonde guy is.
1: (laughs) He's Slager Law in all but name, isn't he? Maybe this is retroactive character assassination on Slager. Slager was pretty bad.
0: He wasn't given much opportunity (laughs) to be as bad as these guys are, though. He died pretty fast.
1: There's one important aspect of this episode that we haven't really talked about at all. It kind of goes back to what you were saying about the contrast in presentation between these two sides, between the fractious Albion and the political infighting of the Federation, which is kind of hinted at here by the mention that all of the ships searching Africa for the GPO-2 are attached to this one Admiral, which suggests some kind of intrigue within the Federation.
0: And while, of course, we can't know if it's true, the mere fact that there is a rumor going around the crew that the other ships aren't actually trying to find the Unit 2 because they're too afraid of the nuke, that the Albion cannot rely even on its own allies to actually help... (laughs)
1: All of that contrasted with the implicit trust between Zeons over on the other side, where even though they don't really know what Operation Stardust is, they're all willing to do everything they can and give all for the cause.
0: Right, that they've been holding out all this time, and they are going to exhaust every last resource to further this mission for a commander that presumably they've never
1: met. Including this HLV, which presumably they had originally so that they could escape back into space. Once upon a time, that was their way out, but they're willing to give it up for the sake of this mission.
0: And they know they're going to lose all their mobile suits, and they have been ordered, reasonably, I think, to surrender once the HLV is clean away. They will at that point have no resources for fighting, and what's the point of all those men getting killed if the Federation comes to take the base? They might as well surrender in the hope that what they have done will lead to the outcome that they all want.
1: And this isn't the thing that I'm ultimately driving towards, but in passing, I do want to point out the characterization of the commander and this base and their relationship to Africa is very interesting because we see his, like, trophies, his pictures of their time in Africa, Federation mobile suits killed, his men posing together, but also big game hunting. There's a picture of them with a lion that they shot. And he has this gigantic diamond.
0: And a huge gilded portrait of Girin. God. And one of the pictures looks like it's probably from some kind of uh, a ball or a fancy event because it's a bunch of men in uniform and then a couple of figures of women included.
1: So the characterization here is very clearly of a foreign colonial power.
0: Extractive.
1: Exactly. The people who go to Africa to do big game hunting with high powered rifles and mobile suits And collect diamonds from the earth like this is Britain in South Africa. This is Belgium in the Congo. This is Italy in Ethiopia. This is the foreign power that comes to Africa to harvest its riches.
0: And maybe we're, you know, however many hundreds of years in the future, but they have positioned themselves in a place that has all those same associations. Like, oh, yes, we have taken this old diamond mine for our base. Why, yes, I do live in this opulently appointed room underground with all this heavy, gilt furniture and, oh no, my last bottle of champagne.
1: <laughs> Yet the Federation itself doesn't really have a presence in Africa either. We see, for instance, there's a map of, of like ships that have come to search Africa for the GPO-2, and they've all come from outside of the continent. We know, of course, from Zeta and Double Zeta that the Federation capital will be in Dakar, might already be there. But like down here in the southern eastern part of Africa, the Federation is also a foreign power. But the thing that I've actually been talking my way towards here is that there's a third element that connects these two factions. There's a bit of sinew that ties them together, and that's Orville.
0: I really thought they were going to draw out the Orville thing for longer. I thought there was going to be more suspense, sabotage. (laughs) How could they have known we were coming to this place kind of thing? I mean,
1: I guess he's still alive even if he's stranded in the African Sahara.
0: I was going to ask about that because uh, I thought it was slightly ambiguous whether he got trampled or not.
1: I think he's okay. I think he's alive. All right. Well, he's alive but maybe not okay. (laughs) Though, Glemmy was fine. Glemmy managed to get stranded in a even less hospitable part of Africa, and he survived. But the thing about Orville is that he ultimately brings destruction to both sides through his duplicity. He Isn't he,
0: that just Anaheim technology in a nutshell?
1: <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs>
0: And now, Tom's research on the hunt for Kimberide base.
1: The Albion spends this episode hunting for Gato and his stolen Gundam, and by extension, for that secret subterranean Zeon base where the lieutenant commander has gone to ground. The base itself is called either Kimberide or Kimberide or Kimberlide in English. It's Kinbarido in Japanese. Like Captain Synapse and the rest of his crew, I would very much like to know where Kimberide and the abandoned diamond mine that houses it actually is. Unfortunately, unlike Dakar or Gardaia, Kimberide doesn't map neatly onto some modern town with the same name, and most side material source books, like the Gundam Fact Files or Gundam Officials either omit it completely or just list its location as unknown. But I'm not satisfied by that. I think we can do better. So let's go hunting for Kimberide. To start, there is one source book, a map from the Newtype 100% collection Art and Data Book created by the editors of Newtype magazine and published by their parent company Kadokawa, which does give the Kimberide base a definite location. But after marshalling all of the evidence, I've become convinced that they are wrong. And I'm going to explain why. This episode, thankfully, contains a decent amount of geographical information that helps us to narrow down our search quite significantly. The opening text tells us that we are in eastern Africa, and the Albion is shown traveling past Mount Kilimanjaro at the beginning of the episode. So that gives us a very clear starting point. During the video call with High Command in Jaburo, we see a couple of background shots of a map that appears to be tracking the flight paths of three ships which are actively searching this part of the African continent. Unfortunately, the same map appears in a couple of different shots, and it's not always entirely consistent with itself. The first such shot is a background image that appears behind Captain Synapse, while the second is the only thing on screen when it appears. For that reason, I'm going to assume that where the two maps differ, the latter one is correct. I'm sure the former one can be explained by Minovsky particle interference, somehow. One of these ships arrived from the southwest, presumably coming from South America, first entering the continent in Namibia, and then traveling generally northward through Angola into the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The map puts it roughly level with Lake Edward, but far to its west, near the middle of the country, probably somewhere near the modern-day city of Kisangani. The second ship arrived from the southeast, traveling northwest across Madagascar before entering the continent near the mouth of the Ligona River, which separates the Nampula and Zambezia provinces of Mozambique, before going north through Malawi into Zambia and then southern Tanzania. The third is coming down from the north, starting in Turkey, crossing the Mediterranean to Egypt, zigzagging across the Red Sea to Saudi Arabia, then back down through Sudan, passing Lake Tana in Ethiopia, and continuing south past Lake Turkana in Kenya, to a point just east of Lake Victoria, near Serengeti National Park. Of these three ships, the second one, coming from the southeast across Madagascar, looks at first glance like the most likely candidate to be the Albion. A ship leaving southern Australia and traveling directly for Africa via the most direct flight path probably would cross the Indian Ocean, arrive at Madagascar, and then enter the African continent along a pretty similar flight path to what we see. The new type 100% map that I mentioned before assumes exactly this, drawing the Albion's flight path just so. But there are two important reasons why I think that they are wrong to do so. First, of the three ships on the map, the two coming in from the south are both drawn in the same light blue color, while the third is drawn in white. This is consistent across both times that the map appears. It's possible that the operators have simply chosen to highlight this third ship for some reason and that's why it's been drawn in a different color, but I think the more natural assumption is that the one ship on the board with a uniquely colored marker is the Albion itself. Second, fatally, by this point in the episode we have seen the Albion within visual range of the unmistakable Mount Kilimanjaro, separated from it by a stretch of savanna. However, The southeastern ship's position on the map is more than 500 miles, more than 850 kilometers, away from the mountain, with a sizable lake in between them. The only ship on the map shown to pass remotely close to Kilimanjaro is that third one, the one marked out in white. Its position in or near the Serengeti is still about 200 miles from Mount Kilimanjaro, Further than seems to be implied by the show, but close enough that the map would only need to be a little bit wrong in order to put the Albion exactly where it appears to be. It is also theoretically possible that a ship flying over the Serengeti would be able to see Kilimanjaro. The mountain is tall enough, the Serengeti itself is somewhat elevated, so the curvature of the earth itself shouldn't block line of sight. Then obstructions like trees or hills would not be an issue for the flying Albion. That still leaves things like dust, air pollution, or water vapor in the air. But if we hypothesize a remarkably clear day when there's very little in the air except for Minovsky particles, maybe the map isn't wrong at all. Incidentally, the Toto song Africa contains a lyric about Kilimanjaro rising over the Serengeti, and this has inspired some Kilimanjaro enthusiasts to actually calculate whether it's theoretically possible to see the mountain from the park. And they concluded that it is theoretically possible. They didn't stop there, though. They actually interviewed a bunch of Serengeti Park guides to see if any of them ever had actually seen the mountain's peak, but none of them had. That's real dedication to obscure pop culture research, and I salute it. (laughs) Alright, so let's say that third ship is the Albion. At first, its flight path makes very little sense. If it were coming from the area around Sydney, why wouldn't it travel by the shortest route directly across the Indian Ocean? But then again, why would it? There's no reason to think that the Albion knew Gato was headed for Africa when they set off. And there's no reason to think that they were able to track his submarine across the ocean. It seems entirely plausible instead that they would have traveled through Asia, reached Turkey, and then perhaps, having received some new bit of intelligence, have traveled down into Africa to continue the search there. The new type map itself also claims that 10 days passed between the Albion's departure and the discovery of the Kimberide base, and the show confirms that the crew have been at this search long enough to get bored and surly. 10 days is probably too much time for a ship like the Albion to spend just crossing the Indian Ocean and traveling about 800 miles inland. But to skirt the coast of Asia, cross India, head up to Turkey, turn around, and zigzag across more than 2,500 miles of African desert? Well, that starts to sound much more reasonable for 10 days. So now we know where we are. Northeastern Tanzania and Bering South. We also know that there are other ships nearby. One is 500 miles to the south, and one is 750 miles to the west. I think that's important, so don't forget it. Now, let's try to figure out where we're going, and let's start with etymology. The etymology for the Japanese name, Kinbaraido is pretty straightforward. It's almost certainly a slight modification of Kinbaraito, shortening the long A sound in the middle And substituting do for the to at the end. Kimberaito, in turn, is the Japanese word for the igneous rock kimberlite, which is relevant here because kimberlite is the primary rock from which we mine diamonds. A silica-poor and magnesium- rich rock, kimberlite is often called Earth's diamond delivery system. Because it is through kimberlite eruptions that diamonds are carried from the earth's mantle where they form up through the crust to the parts of the earth that we can actually get at. Early on in human history, most diamonds were found in alluvial deposits. Over millions of years, the natural process of erosion would wear away the softer kimberlite, leaving behind the diamonds which would then be washed away by rivers, eventually settling in riverbeds like any other river pebble. The rivers dry up or change course, and they leave behind diamond fields, where the stones lie close enough to the surface that they can be extracted with relatively simple excavation. But then, in 1870, prospectors in South Africa discovered diamonds still in their primary source rock. Digging down, they soon concluded that the rock was igneous in origin, and they named it for the nearby town of Kimberley. What they had found was what is called a kimberlite pipe. A narrow, carrot-shaped mass of kimberlite created where a volcano of kimberlite magma had once erupted. Kimberlite eruptions, almost all of which occurred more than 25 million years ago, are deep source volcanoes, which is to say that they originate from far deeper in the earth than normal volcanoes, at least 150 kilometers underground. Kimberlite magma is rich in carbon dioxide and water volatile compounds that expand rapidly as the magma travels toward the surface. That expansion propels the magma upwards at even greater speeds, supersonic speeds, much faster than an ordinary volcano. This rapid ascent has two important consequences. First, it means that the diamonds, which are essentially passengers in the kimberlite magma, are only exposed to it for a relatively short period of time, and so they're less likely to be melted by it than in a normal volcano. And second, it forms a unique kind of volcanic structure after erupting. Instead of forming a volcanic mountain, a kimberlite eruption produces only a low ring of debris, called a tuff ring. If you study the aerial views of the kimberide base, you will notice that it's surrounded by a low ring of rock, one that looks too low and flat to be a volcano. I suspect that this is meant to be the tuff ring so this tells us that the kimberide-based diamond mine must be in a kimberlite pipe. That narrows our search quite significantly. Kimberlite pipes are relatively rare, and they almost exclusively occur in the oldest and most stable portions of continents, areas called cratons. Not all kimberlite pipes contain diamonds, and not all diamondiferous kimberlites contain enough of them to actually be worth mining out. In South Africa, where more than 1,000 kimberlite pipes have been identified, only about 50 of those are thought to be rich enough to be worth the cost of mining. Mining sites are graded in carats per 100 tons. 136 carats per 100 tons, the grade that was given to the recently opened Venetia mine, works out to roughly 0.272 parts per million. And that's considered a pretty good number. The Letsang diamond mine in Lesotho rates a mere 3 carats per 100 tons. The De Beers Diamond Consortium estimates that only 15% of kimberlites contain any diamonds at all, and out of 2,000 kimberlites discovered and explored across a 20-year period, only about 2.5% of them were found to have grades above 10 carats per 100 tons. Now, a low-grade kimberlite pipe might still be worth mining, at least at the service level, but the deeper you go, the more expensive the mine becomes. Industrial-scale diamond mining on kimberlite pipes tends to happen in two distinct stages. First, there is an open pit mine. This is what it sounds like. You dig a big pit, and then you process the extracted rock looking for diamonds. These pits can go tens or hundreds of meters into the ground, with an access road spiraling down around the outer edge, exactly as you see in the show. At a certain point, though, it becomes more efficient to go underground, switching to what is called block-cave mining, and beginning this second phase. In block-cave mining, miners dig a series of chambers underneath the ore that they're trying to access, and then they use a combination of gravity and explosives to cause the ore to break apart and fall down into those previously prepared collection chambers, from which it can be extracted for processing. Underground mining like this has huge setup costs. For example, In 2021, De Beers announced that they would be taking the Nang diamond mine in Botswana underground, at an estimated cost of $6 billion. Most open-pit diamond mines are simply abandoned instead when they're no longer viable. From the show, we know that the Kimberide base was built in one of those few underground diamond mines, and we know that it's in the area around Mount Kilimanjaro we can probably guess that the Albion didn't travel farther away than the current locations of any of those other Federation ships, because maybe one of those other ships would have gone instead, and at the very least, the Albion should have been able to radio for help if they were nearby. So that gives us an outer bound on our search. We could be looking for an actual diamond mine, one that exists today, ideally one that had already gone underground in 1991, or we might be looking for one that could be built in the speculative future between now and the universal century. Diamond mines don't usually operate for that long. Even a rich one with extensive pit mining and underground exploration, like Kimberley's famous Big Hole Mine, was only operating for about 40 years. Jaeger's Fontaine, also in South Africa, is the deepest such mine in the world and the longest-lived of all the ones that i found but it still only operated for around 100 years. It seems entirely possible that a diamond mine could be identified, built, exhausted, and abandoned all within the 80-odd years of the universal century. Fortunately, there aren't many viable kimberlite pipes in the area around Mount Kilimanjaro. South Africa is thick with them, but like I said, I think it's unlikely that the Albion traveled that far. It's 1,400 miles or 2,300 kilometers from their current position, just to reach the northernmost of those South African mines. And again, there's other Federation ships closer. That leaves us with only two extant mine candidates. The Miba Mine in Mujimai, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, 775 miles from the Albion's last known position, and the Williamson Diamond Mine, a mere 120 miles away, near Shinyanga in Tanzania. I would like to discount the Miba Mine out of hand as too far away, but that new Type 100% map puts the Kimberide base squarely on it. It doesn't name the mine explicitly, but if you lay their map over a map of Africa, the dot for Kimberide is right there on Mbujimai, so I feel obliged to at least consider the possibility. Both Miba and Williamson Mines are rich sources of diamonds, and both were operating in 1991, so the show's creators could have known about them. On the other hand, even today, neither one has gone underground yet. There is some talk of taking the Williamson Mine underground, but until fairly recently, it was believed that the rock there was not suitable for underground mining. And over at the Miba Mine, Civil wars, mismanagement, capital shortfalls, and a whole bunch of other problems have slowed large-scale mining operations there to an absolute standstill. Most of the mining is being done small-scale, exclusively at the surface level, what is euphemistically called artisanal mining. I can't find any trace of the kind of huge spiraling open pit mine that we see in the show. Thus, despite that new type map, I think we have to discount the Miba mine as a plausible location for Kimberide. It's just too far away, and it's not really developed, and again, there's another Federation ship closer. The Williamson mine, then, seems far more likely, and it would align better with 0083's novelization, which expressly puts the base somewhere in Tanzania. But there is a further problem with the Williamson mine, and actually with all of the mines that I've been talking about. You will recall that the open-pit mine above the underground kimberite base was nested inside a ring of raised rock, probably the tough ring that is characteristic of kimberlite eruptions. Neither the Williamson Diamond Mine, nor the Meeba Mine, nor any of the other kimberlite pipe mines look like that. Remember, these kimberlite pipes are all tens to hundreds of millions of years old. Those tough rings are especially susceptible to erosion, and over time, they've been worn away to nothing. So when you see a pit for a diamond mine, its top lip is just level with all the surrounding ground, and then it just drops away into the abyss. As a matter of fact, there's only one known spot on Earth where kimberlite volcanoes still have their tough rings, the Iguisi Hills volcanoes in Tanzania. These unique kimberlite pipes have been known at least since the 1950s, but they are in a remote part of the country and few studies have been carried out on them. There are no mines there today, and it doesn't seem like they are diamond-bearing, but hey, anything is possible in the universal century. So, considering all of the evidence, the proximity to Kilimanjaro, the name of the base, and especially the unique topography of the Iguisi Hills, I think that has got to be the spot. And special shout out, by the way, to fellow Gundam researcher Petsu chan, who helped with this piece and first mentioned the Iquisi Hills to me. Also, incidentally, during the research for this piece, I discovered that Japan was into diamonds in a big way when 0083 was being planned. In fact, by the early 90s, Japan was buying more diamonds than any country besides the United States. They had become such a force in the diamond market that when the asset price bubble collapsed in japan which started in 1990 and then continued through w83's run that was a serious blow to the global diamond trade perhaps like the sasabi being named for sotheby's the role of kimberide base in this story is a permanent legacy of the vogue for imported luxuries that swept japan in the last years of the bubble economy
0: Next time on Episode 8.5, sending this message was important to us. We research and discuss Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory Episode 5 and… Not so rough. The Unit 1's controls are a metaphor. A real old-fashioned villainess. No flirting in the Gundam. Can't a woman eat in peace? Full Burnern. Girls don't like boys, girls like math and gundams. Girls don't Don't like boys, boys. girls girls like math and gundams. Gundams. (laughs) Revanchism. Shield-chan! No! Rapid unscheduled disassembly. And This means war. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours.
1: Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music for this season is 80s Synth Rock Guitar Improvisation by Zombiefish. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, gundampodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at gundampodcast, or by email to hosts at gundampodcast.com. And thank you for listening. The Wrong Gundam Opinion this week was submitted by Tirhan, and it's... Gato? Oh. I could fix him. Thank you, Tirhan. You can't, by the way. Don't even try. It'll end badly for you.
0: No one ever listens to that kind of (laughs) advice.
1: (laughs) You just have to find out for yourself. Joe and I don't remember it, so I'm just going to call him Base Commander. The De Beers Diamond Corp... The De Beers Diamond Corp... <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't want to want to... I don't want to want... Simon? Simon. I think it's Simon.
0: Simon.
1: Well, I wasn't going to comment on that because I don't know and I don't want to insult anyone.
0: Um, hang on. And then you had mentioned something else about them. Uh, shoot. I don't remember what the last thing you said was.
1: Burning, injured pressure cookers, standing ready, could swerve that back to the Xeons.
0: Oh, father figures. You were talking mm, about father figures and responsibility.
1: And Nina remains the, the arbiter of that to a certain degree. Obviously Gato breaking in and stealing one of them.
0: And Burning got to decide who would pilot the Unit 1. Nina had influence, but she didn't get to choose.
1: True, but the show presents her influence as dispositive. And I know it's, like, literally not, but...
0: thought Adel and Bait were two different people and not one person's No, they're two different
1: people. Wait. It's it's Alpha Bait and Chap Adel. And
0: Chap Adel. Okay. I'm never gonna remember that, but alright. You'll get there. Um...